You are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit brockportfirstbaptist.org. Our second reading today is from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, also found in your pew Bible on page 785. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Good morning again, everyone. So I've got to say, I've really enjoyed the rain this past week. I don't know how you all feel about it. We've been in a drought for like a month, um, so it's a really good thing. Um, But I moved here from Southern California, um, so I kind of feel like I've been in a drought for seven years. Uh, So it is a really uh, good thing. It is great to be back in a part of the country where it rains. Uh, I enjoy it. Um, We're in the middle of this series on the Beatitudes, which is a collection of blessings from Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. And the verse we're looking at today is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now this one's a bit of a head-scratcher for me, I'll be totally honest. Um, The other Beatitudes just feel more concrete, right? Like, I can understand, blessed are those who mourn. I can understand mourning. I get it when Jesus blesses the merciful and peacemakers. I can visualize that. I even have a sense of what it means to be pure in heart. But what does it look like, concretely, to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I know what it feels like to hunger for pizza. <laughs> that I get. That I get very, very practically. Um, living in, in California the last seven years, I get what it means to be thirsty. But what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I think part of the problem is that righteousness has kind of a mixed connotation in our culture today. It's not entirely bad, but it's not entirely good either. Um, We often think of righteousness in the context of being self-righteous, holier than thou. Um, This is something I've come to call righteousness as rightness. It's It's about how right we are. And I think it's important to address this misappropriation of righteousness right up front. Righteousness as rightness has many different manifestations. Um, In more conservative Christian circles, it usually takes the form of doctrinal purity, right? It's about having all your little theological ducks in a row, the desire to be right, to be correct. Uh, Righteousness as rightness can also manifest as moral purity, or at least the outward appearance of moral purity, right? Um, There's this joke that I learned in seminary, and I'm not 100% sure it's appropriate for a sermon, 
But I did show a Monty Python clip last week, and you all came back. <laughs> so at this point, um, you should know what you're in for. Um, but the joke goes like this. Would you rather split a six-pack with one Baptist or two? And the punchline is two, because Baptists don't drink in front of each other. <laughs> F. That's that whole outward moral purity thing, though, right? <clears throat> And it's a, it's a kind of funny joke, um, but it really speaks to this idea of righteousness as rightness, as, as the appearance of moral purity. And in actual practice, it's not always that funny. I would bet that many of us in this room have probably been the victims of this form of righteousness at some point. Because when you're obsessed with being right, with being morally pure, that tends to be something you lord over other people, often to very destructive results. There is a manifestation of righteousness as rightness that affects more progressive Christian circles as well. Um, this is something that experts have started calling persistent moral outrage. Is anyone familiar with the phrase persistent moral outrage? There's a couple, okay, some people, yeah. Um, persistent moral outrage predates the internet but it has become especially widespread with the rise of social media. Thanks to platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I can now go online anytime, day or night, and find something to be enraged about. And I'll confess, um, this got really bad for me a few years ago. Um, I had this habit where I would scroll through my Facebook feed, where inevitably I would stumble upon some news story, or some post from a friend um, that made me angry. And so, you know, common sense, I would click it, I would read it, I would give it the little angry face emoji, right? And then I would share it on my own wall, usually with a quote or with some pithy little comment about how ridiculous this story is. And then Facebook's algorithm sees my post, does its little magic, and bombards me with yet another article or post to be enraged about. It's kind of like a drug. Maybe you find yourself in this little, this fun little spiral at some point. And it's not just online, right? Uh, persistent moral outrage can manifest with cable news, newspaper clippings, getting in debates and arguments with coworkers and family, you name it. And I probably don't have to tell you this, but um, this form of righteousness as rightness is not a very healthy way to live. Um, psychologists have actually begun studying persistent moral outrage, uh, exploring the psychology behind why we do this. And what they're finding is pretty fascinating. Um, basically, this is all driven by our own sense of moral failure. It's the shame the guilt, and the powerlessness we feel when we realize that we have failed to live up to our own standards. And so we find something worse than ourselves and kind of deflect attention to it. We click it, we share it, and the cycle goes on. This is the same impulse, by the way, behind those more conservative manifestations of persistent moral outrage that I talked about a few moments ago. It's the exact same underlying thing. And here's the thing. <clears throat> I don't think this is what Jesus has in mind when he blesses those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. I don't think Jesus wants us trapped in these never-ending cycles of shame and anxiety, feeling like we continually have to prove our own moral, doctrinal, or progressive credentials. So what kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about? Well, Matthew's gospel gives us some clues, uh, which is helpful. Uh, Matthew is a big fan of righteousness. The term righteousness occurs more in Matthew's gospel than in any of the other gospels. In fact, uh, Matthew uses the term righteousness more than any other New Testament author except for Paul. Um, But that comparison's not really fair because Paul wrote like half the New Testament, right? So if if you look at like average per book occurrences, Matthew wins. Um... And Matthew generally will use righteousness in the way you'd expect. You know, he's talking about persistent, or sorry, not persistent moral outrage. He's talking, um, he's talking about being morally pure, being morally upright. But there's this other way Matthew invokes righteousness, and I find it fascinating. In Matthew 3, um, Jesus goes to get baptized by John the Baptist, a pretty famous story. And John the Baptist tries to stop him. But Jesus insists, saying that his baptism is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So that's interesting. Thinking of righteousness as something that gets fulfilled by our participation. In Matthew 21, um, Jesus talks about people walking in the way of righteousness, which again is this very participatory understanding of righteousness and what it is to be righteous. And then later in the Sermon on the Mount, just about a chapter or so after the passage we're looking at today, Jesus instructs his followers to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. So there's this sense in Matthew's gospel that righteousness is this thing that God is doing in the world, something that God has initiated that's yet to be fulfilled, something that we are called to participate in. This isn't righteousness as rightness, but we could think of it as righteousness as made rightness. And I know, I know that's a lot of made-up hyphenated words, but please stick with me for like a minute, and this will all make sense. Made rightness. There is this sense rooted very deeply in our collective human consciousness, that things are not right. Maybe you've felt this before. People are not supposed to suffer the way millions suffer every day. Our bodies are not supposed to break down and betray us. Marriages are not supposed to end. Communities are not supposed to be torn apart by war and natural disaster. Something is not right. In Judaism and Christianity, the the root cause or the explanation for all of this not-rightness has historically been linked to some sort of a separation, a gap between God and creation, between God and us. A gap, by the way, that shouldn't be there. A gap that's not right. And in Jesus, God closes that gap. One thing that becomes very clear if you read the Gospels is that Jesus shares our sense that things are not right. 
And he sets out in his life and ministry to remedy that, to make things right. It's Jesus who declares, Behold, I come to make all things new. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. (laughs) And that's what we see Jesus doing. He makes things new. He gives sight to the blind. He restores outcasts to community. He calms storms. He raises the dead. He takes on death itself on the cross and prevails over it in the resurrection. Made rightness, the desire to see things put right, to see the relationship between creation and its creator restored, that's what I think it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, by the way, in Greek, in the language of the New Testament, it's the exact same word we translate justice. So righteousness and justice, two totally different words, totally different ideas in English, in the language of the Bible, are actually one, because it's about making things right, being made right. And the blessing Jesus declares on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is that they will be filled. They will be satisfied, which again is fascinating. Because I don't know about you, um, but when I look at the world, I am not satisfied. Um, Jesus announced this blessing about 2,000 years ago. So what gives? When are we going to be satisfied? When is this desire to see things set right going to be fulfilled? Now, we've looked at a number of made-up hyphenated words today. Rightness, made rightness, right? And there's one more I want to share with you, but this one I didn't make up myself. This one was made up by theology scholars. I'm just using it. And it's already not yet. This is one of my favorite theological ideas, and it's something that if you come here regularly, you're going to hear me talk about a lot. Already, not yet. This refers to the state of our world after the resurrection of Jesus, and it is a beautifully counterintuitive idea. In one sense, things have already been set right by the resurrection, but not yet. If we could zoom way, way out and look at uh, existence on sort of a cosmic, metaphysical level, we'd see that death, decay, sin, even evil itself have already been defeated on the cross. But this universe of ours is lagging behind. Our reality has yet to catch up with God's reality. Already, not yet. Jesus is speaking to his listeners on at least two different levels in this passage. On one hand, many of those listening to him would live to see the resurrection. This hope at the heart of their faith about overcoming death, this hope that drove their yearning for things to be made right, really was fulfilled in their lifetime when they saw Jesus step out of the tomb. But on the other hand, Jesus is speaking about a restoration of all things with God that still lies in the future. Something his listeners didn't live to see. Something none of us will likely live to see. 
but something we are nevertheless called to participate in with the promise that we will be satisfied. As Christians, we are called to live in this already not yet, to participate in God's work of redeeming and recreating the world, having already glimpsed the end in Christ. This beatitude is really an invitation. You could even call this the gospel. We usually think in the go- of the gospel in very personal, individualistic ways. It's about me and repairing my relationship with God, um, which is super important, but that's like step one of 30. <laughs> the forces of sin and death impact more than an individual's relationship with God. They impact our relationship with each other, with ourselves, with the earth, the relationship between communities and God. And Jesus comes to restore it all. You see Jesus doing this in his earthly ministry, as I, as I mentioned a few moments ago, and a funny thing happens if you look at the early church, like the book of Acts is a good example of this. The first Christians do the same stuff that Jesus did in the Gospels. It's like the same story being told over again. Peter, Paul, the other Christ followers, they heal the sick. They feed the hungry. They restore outsiders to community. They even raise the dead. This stuff we think of as maybe outreach or service or charity or mission, this is not secondary stuff. This is all part of the gospel. This is part of what it looks like to seek after God's righteousness, to become co-workers, if you will, in God's work of restoring and setting right all things. And in that work, we will be satisfied. I want to kind of sum this up by reading one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's from Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, and I think it encapsulates this message quite nicely. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Or maybe to put it even more simply, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Amen.